Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. And we are live. Thank you so much for joining this episode of the Connection Loop podcast. Today we have Josh with us, and Josh is an author and a speaker and a business owner and, and all things inspiring. So Josh, if you could please start with a short bio and let, let's get into the topic. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, so I'm a weird guy. Started my career as a jazz guitarist. I still play regularly today. Put myself through college playing music. Um, but I got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug early. At age 20, I started my first tech company. And over the last 30 years, I've started, built, and sold five technology companies. I then got into venture capital and, and loved the, the idea of helping others build, build successful businesses. So I helped get about 100 startups off the ground. A couple winners and a couple, of course, struggles, but uh, a lot of fun nonetheless. Uh, my real passion, though, all, all, all in, is, is human creativity. How do you harness creativity, not just for the sake of it, but to drive better outcomes in our businesses and our lives? So I've had the chance to write four books on the topic, and I now speak all over a research company on uh, helping p- people, companies build cultures of innovation. Mm. So a couple of questions just to get started out with here. Um, number one is when you say that you got bit by the entrepreneurial bug, um, you you were in a creative situation, you are a jazz musician. Um, when did you decide to make that transition? What was that bug? What was the catalyst? Was it a person? Was it a feeling? What was it? What was it that hit you? Well, I, I was, as mentioned, a musician, but I was also a little bit of a tech nerd or maybe a lot of bit of a tech nerd. <laughs> so okay. this is like in the 80s, I had like an Atari 800 and I would write code on it. And I just was on a bulletin board, which is the precursor to the internet. And so in, in 1990, I was 20 years old in college and you couldn't go buy a cheap computer at Best Buy at the time. You couldn't just go to Dell.com and order a computer. But I was, realized there was this weird market dynamic because I, I was kind of a nerd and, and I would look at computer catalogs and I could mail order individual components and assemble a, col- a computer and still sell it for way less than someone could buy at retail and I could make a profit. So I'd never taken a business class. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, hey, if I could figure out jazz, maybe I could improvise my way through this. So I started this little company in college and started selling computers and made a little bit of money, made a ton of mistakes, but uh, I just fell in love with the idea of creating something out of nothing. And frankly, it was just like jazz. It was literally like creating something out of nothing, just using different instruments. Hmm. Love that. Now, there's this kind of stigma that the stereotype, if you will, that, you know, some creative people are not great business people. You hear that a lot, whether it's artists or musicians, poets, ventriloquists. Um, It's an unfortunate stereotype that exists. Now, maybe there's some truth to it, because when you go and you learn how to become a ventriloquist, it's not exactly where you're taking business classes. (laughs) Now, that said, you know, What would you say to listeners about how to be creative, but then also how to be a good business person at the same time, how to have that church versus state, how to not mess up your creative juices, but also get your rent paid? Yeah, I, you know, I think that those are much more aligned than, than may seem obvious. Part of the issue is that we attribute certain types of creativity with, with, um, with, with some, like, 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 for example, we say, okay, if you paint, you're creative, but if you're in finance, you're not creative. So we assume that a job title or a role equals your level of creativity, which is nonsense. You can have very unre- 
creative musicians that play in symphony orchestras and play the notes with precision, but don't create much of anything. And you can have wildly creative accountants and lawyers and such. So I think we have to get past what does creativity look like? It doesn't totally have agree. to look like molding out of clay or doing interpretive dance. We can be creative in any role in a, in, in a business setting. Second thing I would say is that today, more than ever, I would say that creativity isn't no, is no longer a nice to have. It's mission critical. Yes. You know, maybe in the past, you know, the quote unquote hard skills of the past would carry someone through their career or, or business wins. But today, those hard skills have become commoditized and outsourced and automated. And so the one thing that's not, that the one thing that's left standing, the real differentiator is human creativity. And, and it shows up in different ways. It's not necessarily painting on the walls with purple crayons. It's creative problem solving. It's inventive thinking. It's finding creative ways to sell your product or to, or to serve a customer need or to recruit or to drive efficiencies in your factory. So we can use creativity in non-traditional ways in the business setting. And I would argue that that, in fact, has become the most powerful resource at our disposal in these challenging and modern times. You know, I, I can't agree more with that. You know, it's it's amazing how we look at so many jobs getting outsourced now. You know, as the father of a soon-to-be eight-year-old boy, I, I ask myself, what is it that I can teach him? How can I empower him so that when he gets to be 18 or 24 or 35, that he has a certain skill set that makes him valuable and that makes him happy, right? And and on his purpose. And, you know, I, I ask myself, well, is it programming? Is it... Uh, you know, reading, is it business skills? What is it? And for me, I have come with these, these kind of three, these three mantras that I'm really sticking with, which is, which is number one is, is, is creativity. It's thinking outside the box. I really appreciate how you present this idea that all functions, all jobs can be creative. It's about solving problems. You know, number two is, is empathy, is actually connecting with the struggles of people or businesses. Because when you understand struggles, that's how you can understand solutions. And then I would say the, the last one is just generally acquiring those, those hard skills that are required to, to do what you need to do. Um, those obviously can get automated, they can get outsourced, but by having those uh, those hard skills allows you to to do the work to to execute. You know, um, what would you say to your twenty one year old self? What is it that you know now that you did not know back then? I'm lucky that I have a twenty three year old and a twenty one year old. Uh, I have son and daughter, and then I also have four year old twins. So I actually get to say that to real yeah. breathing people. <laughs> Um, I totally agree with you and those three categories, you know, in reverse order, first of all, you know, that the, the hard skills, you know, maybe it's a different approach. Like, like if we're going to be a, in, in a craft, for sure, we need to learn the mechanics of the craft. So you and I play music and you have to learn, you know, what is a, what is a downbeat and how do you play a scale or whatever? So, so you're right. We absolutely need to learn the mechanics of the craft, but things like rote memorization that you, you study for a test and then forget five minutes later, I think serves nobody. And it doesn't, doesn't do anything. Think about, and, and but the other two are so crucial, you know, creativity and empathy. Why don't we have classes like that in school? And I'm not blaming teachers. Teachers are heroes, but, but we have a system that is completely antiquated and out of date, not preparing kids for what they need for the future. I think that you should have a mandatory class called making mistakes. What's a good mistake? What's a bad mistake? How do you learn from them? What's a responsible risk versus a not responsible risk? You mentioned empathy. Why not have a course on empathy and compassion? Awesome. So I think your creative problem solving, again, so critical. But then you look what we're taught. Like I learned long division by hand. I'm sure you did too. In my career in 30 years, I literally created 10,000 jobs, create, bought and sold companies, hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions. I've never used long division by hand once. So I'm not, again, not trying to beat up on any, any teachers or anything, but I do think that we're in desperate need of reform to prepare our kids so that they can thrive, not in the yesteryear, but in the modern era. Mm. 
Phenomenal, phenomenal. Now you wrote a book. In fact, you wrote four books, but recently you wrote Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. Take me through this process. Yeah, man, thank you so much. I'm really proud of this book. I, I poured my heart and soul into it. I spent over a thousand hours in research and interviews with CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and Grammy award-winning musicians and lots of normal people. But the idea behind the book is it sort of flips the principle of innovation upside down. Most of us think that you have to swing for the fences and take a moonshot and, and you know change the universe or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. But I think a more pragmatic approach is to do the opposite, to cultivate high volumes of small everyday ideas. Think of them as micro innovations. And here's why. First of all, it's way more accessible to more people. Most of us can take a small bet. Maybe we can't take a billion dollar bet. You are learning critical skills in the same time. You are those small wins add up to big wins. And um, and and you you are taking way less risk. So I think it's actually a better way of thinking about innovation. And, and again, you can apply it in every area of your life, from how do you cool off a glass of white wine to how do you close a deal and how do you you know engage with your kids or your community. I think we lost your audio there. Now, would you say that the the four books that you've written they all sort of are driven from a similar theme? A similar place, or would you say that these kind of came to you in, in very different manifestations? Here, they, they did all come from a similar foundation. Thank, thank you for asking that. And, and it's a core belief, and I actually feel like it's a purpose or even a calling. I don't, I, I don't mean to sound like a Hallmark card, but here's the way I look at the world. I look at the world that we have 7 billion people with dormant creative capacity of, of varying degrees, me included, and I study creativity. And the thing is that the answers to the problems that matter most to us, whether it's advancing in our companies or solving social injustice or creating equity and, and fairness and eradicating suffering and curing disease, those answers lie inside us and they're, they're, they're trapped in there. And so if I can help people unlock their creative ability, the world is just a better place. It drives better business outcomes, education outcomes, healthcare outcomes, environmental outcomes. And so that's been my core belief all along that, that all human beings have creative capacity. And so all four of the books that I've written are tied to that general theme. But they did they they did change over the years. Like the first book was called Discipline Dreaming with more systematically, how do you cultivate creativity? The second book was really focused on reinvention. How do you reinvent yourself or your business? The third book, I studied hackers as a metaphor. I, I, I went deep inside the world of cybercrime and studied how hackers think and act, not to promote criminal activity, of course, but to, to say, what can we learn from it and apply it in a legitimate way? But I do think this last book, Big Little Breakthroughs, is, is uh, certainly the best thing I've written. I'm really proud of it and excited to share it with the world. Very cool. Now, in addition to being an author, you're a venture capitalist. Um, talk to us about that process. You know, What are the types of bets that you're making on? Um, are you more into the do you bet on the jockey? Do you have a specific sector that you invest? Like what's your what's your sort of mix when you make a choice? Yeah, so I focus on early stage tech, mostly software. Um, right now, I'm focusing on future of work, future of learning, future of sustainability, and future of security. All of those are obviously very big categories, but I think that's where there's, there's terrific economic gains to be had and the opportunity to make the world a better place in each of those. Um, for me, I don't want to invest in a company that makes French fries or something that, that hurts the world. I only want to invest in things that help the world. But in terms of the jockey and the horse, you bring up a great question. And I actually did an experiment. I'll share it with you. So almost at the exact same time, within a month of each other, I made two investments two different companies. Each was $600,000, by the way. One was an A team and a C idea. The other was a C idea and an A team. Here's what happened. Like clockwork, 
the A team managed to take the C idea and make it an A idea. That became a wildly successful investment. The A idea managed to get screwed up quickly by the C team, and I lost every penny. So I really do think, especially in early stage, uh, it, it is a lot about the people, but not what you might think, by the way. It's not who's the most charismatic or who has the, the boldest you know, vision or the loudest voice. It's those that are, that are open-minded, those that are focused on, on delivering real results, those, those that have humility. And so it's not always the, 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 the brazen entrepreneur that you want to bet on. For me, anyway, it's oftentimes the, the soft-spoken one. <laughs> so, so well said. It, it is true. The more successful, the more intelligent you are, sometimes the more humble you are. Now, that's not always the case, <laughs> but uh, emotional quotient is a big factor here. Now, you have taught applied creativity for over 10 years now at the University of Michigan. What is applied creativity? And if you could just quickly give us a crash course in us, if that's possible. Sure. Um I, I, I'm not currently uh, doing anything with, with Michigan, although I'm very close to the, the faculty and, and students there. My daughter just graduated from University of Michigan, by the way. But oh, I do, nice. you're right, I do teach that principle all over the world. I've, I've actually delivered over a, a thousand keynotes over the years. And so to me, applied creativity is the notion that, so creativity for the sake of it is, is it could be artistically compelling. You know, if I created a painting or a, maybe I, I made a musical tune, you could possibly commercialize it, but there, there's intrinsic value more so than like commercial value or utility value. So to me, when I think about applied creativity, it's taking the principles of creativity, which is sort of inventing stuff that doesn't exist today, but applying it for with, where, where there's utility value. How is it, is it? Is it adding value to someone's life? Is it making the world better? Is there a commercially viable uh, idea underneath it? So, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when, when you talk to leaders, they say, creativity, ah, I don't need creativity, I need results. And, and, and applied creativity is using creativity to drive results. That's, that's, that's it right there. I mean, you just, you just summed it up because creativity is how we solve problems. It's in fact why I believe we're on this planet to solve problems. Without listening, we can't learn about those problems. So how important is it to be a good listener in order to be, um, to be creative? Now, being creative, I think, in a bubble is, is one thing. And I've done that for years of my life. In fact, every time I pick up my guitar, I'm being creative in my tiny little bubble, especially since I'm not recording. But when I'm being creative to solve problems, that's an entirely, entirely different thing. So I really, I really appreciate how you articulate that. You know, you, you talk about it, it, this also a fascinating debate. You know, are you better off being creative like the, the lone wolf creative where, you know, Hemingway locks himself in a log cabin and writes the great American novel? Or are you better off co-creating in a collaborative environment? The truth is there's not one right answer. There's different flavors for different people and different ways to be creative at different times. I can just share with you what's worked for me. So, I, you know, again, creativity is such a broad term. There's some creative acts which are more like Genesis where you're creating something out of nothing. For me, sometimes I actually like the co-creation process better. Another creative process, though, is, is the process of revisions. And that is equally creative, but for me, anyway, I, I tend to do that more in a solitary format. But back to music, a passion that you and I both share. So jazz to me, which is one of the reasons I truly love the art form, is it's, it's real-time innovation. It's cre you're making up 99% of what you play is happening spontaneously. And you're composing art and performing art at the same time, mm -hmm. which adds a whole different dimension. I don't think there's any, you, you don't usually do that, like for example, with oil on canvas. And furthermore, it's a collaborative process. It's just like you and I didn't script our conversation today. You're saying something and I'm kind of building off of it or vice versa. So here's what happens in jazz. I play a little riff on the guitar that I make up and let's say it's not very good. 
But then the bass player hears it and says, ooh, I can take that to the next level and picks what I did and takes it to the next level. Then the drummer hears a little rhythm in that, grabs it on a cymbal. And then the sax player hears what's going on, takes that little grain of an idea, rips a killer sax solo to the delight of the audience. We'd say, well, who created that? And, and really, we all created that. We all participated in the creative process. And so I find that when you're really creating something out of nothing, if you can get with like-minded people and there's not a lot of fear or judgment in the room, that co-creation riffing off of one another can be absolutely magical. You know, that that collaboration is truly why I love music. It's, it's actually why I love collaboration. It's because a bad idea can get turned into a good idea if the person is patient, if the person will just say, I'm going to try to iterate that, you know, I'm going to try to iterate that. How, how often does it happen where someone comes up with a mediocre idea and then it gets shot down? You know, what a lost opportunity when that happens, when someone says, what about this? And then the other person says, that's a terrible idea. That's just a starting point, you know? And I think these starting points in life is where are where some of, some of the most uh, magnificent ideas come from. Um, what is required in this mix is to be vulnerable. Now, talk to me about vulnerability a little bit. How have you been vulnerable in your life? How can we all become better vulnerable people so that we can connect to people, so that we can progress and evolve? Well, you're exactly right that ideas get extinguished too quickly. And we see this all the time. There's five people in a room. One comes up with an idea and the other four become the idea police. And they tell you all mm -hmm. the reasons it's never going to work and the boss is going to hate it and you look foolish. And, and so actually it turns out that fear not natural talent, fear is the single biggest blocker of creative output. We all are innately creative as human beings, but that fear, even from well-intentioned bosses or parents gets in the way and it dilutes our, our best creative thinking. So the way you can solve that is a couple things. One is you mentioned vulnerability. Um, I do think it's important to be vulnerable, but you have to feel safe to be vulnerable. In other words, you know, if, if I, I don't feel safe, you know, uh, in front of a firing squad, I, I thought I could try to be vulnerable, but I don't feel safe because that's scary to me. So I think it's more important that we as leaders create environments where people can be vulnerable, but it's safe to be vulnerable. And, and the way we do that is as leaders try to remove the fear as best as we can through rituals and rewards. I can give you lots of examples of that. I mean, one fun example is that there's a company that I work with that every year they do a failure of the year award big banquet. They celebrate other stuff, the team member of the year, the project of the year, but they also celebrate the failure of the year which goes for the team or individual that had a great idea. They, the numbers made sense. They went for it, didn't work out at all, but good for them. And they get a standing ovation instead of getting fired. And so again, think about the message that that sends into this company that it's okay to be vulnerable, that, that fear has left the building. The other thing I would just quickly add is that if you're doing a, a, a brainstorming technique, brainstorming is a terribly outdated technique. It was invented in 1958. I, I don't even like the term. And so I developed a whole series of thir actually 13 that I cover in the book of much more modern, more productive techniques. And the techniques themselves can remove the fear and bring that vulnerability out to allow us to drive better creative outputs. And uh, take us through that process a little bit. Um, how can we uh, rethink brainstorming? Yeah. So... Um, I think of it as outdated technology, really. It's like if you were trying to use a rotary phone or something, that would be kind of silly. And so so uh, I, I invented these, I call them idea jamming instead of brainstorming. And I'll give you an example of them. So let's say, uh, so one of my favorites is called role storming, R-O-L-E. Role storming is brainstorming, but in character. So if I'm normally in a brainstorm and I'm intimidated by my colleagues, I'm going to share my safe ideas and hold my crazy ones back. But if I'm role storming and I'm pretending that I'm Steve Jobs, no one's going to laugh at me for coming up with the big idea. In other words, I'm not personally responsible for the ideas that I generate. It's just Steve coming up with an idea. Mm 
So the way it works is really simple. Each person in the session chooses their own character. You could be a movie star, you could be a supermodel, you could be a villain, you could be a literary figure, you could whatever. And each person, you have to stay in character. So you're brainstorming as if you're Oprah or as if you're Leonardo da Vinci. <clears throat> and what we find is that that simple shift in technique can liberate creative abilities because you're no longer, again, responsible. There's no, there's no backfire from coming up with an idea that doesn't pass muster. Mm-hmm. So good. Now I see this quote here. <clears throat> Great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Vincent Beko. Powerful. Yeah, that's the principle behind Big Little Breakthroughs. You know, most of us think that creativity is this single lightning bolt from the heavens. And we are like, oh, my God, I got the killer idea. And, and then five minutes later, a limousine is waiting to whisk you off to fame and fortune. And you know this from building a business. It's not that at all. Initial ideas are important, but it's the hundreds or thousands of little additional micro innovations along the way that bring that core idea to life. So actually, the yeah. cover of the book... Uh, big little breakthroughs. It was it was based on pointillism, and so it's actually individual little dots, like a little green dot, a little yellow dot. Any one of us could put those dots on there, no problem. That's what a big little breakthrough is, and it's the series of interconnected dots, though, that ultimately create a masterpiece. And that's how I think we should be thinking of creative breakthroughs, not as again a single gift anointed from the heavens, but rather a, the the discipline day in and day out, little dots at a time, add up to big things. So well said. So well said. You know, one of the things that that I have found a lot of peace in when presenting an idea to a group of people, either in the real world or in the digital world, is, is actually embracing the objections as making that part of my pitch, where I have a doc, I have a presentation, but I have a separate notepad that says objections. And as people start to give those objections, I sort of document those. And what that does is that it helps me to iterate the product, because if those are my objections from the people that I'm working with internally, that's exactly what I'm probably gonna face from the, from the outside world. And that just helps me to improve it. And it also makes it so that I'm never offended <laughs> because I asked you for objections and you brought those to me. And, I, and as a result, I was able to improve. So that's so good. You know, so anytime you want to improve in anything in life, certainly in creativity, you got to really examine, all right, what are the mindsets? What are the habits? And what are the tactics? So we talked about role storming as a tactical example, but in terms of mindsets, the back half of the, of the book, I cover the eight core obsessions or eight core mindsets of everyday innovators. And one of them you, you made me think about, it's called fall in love with the problem, not the solution. In other words, often we're all solution oriented and, and we see a problem and we, we, we attack with the first idea we can come up with and then we become married to it and we be, get tunnel visioned and, and we're unwilling to consider alternatives. Whereas the most innovative people and leaders and organizations instead really fall in love with the problem they're trying to solve. And they study it and they, they bathe in it and they look at it from different angles and they never become overly committed to a particular way of solving it, but rather they become committed to solving that problem by, by whatever means in the best way possible necessary. So a lot of these, the mindsets that I cover, which are backed by real world stories and examples and such, are counterintuitive. They're the opposite of what we've been taught. But in fact, they bring forward the creativity that we seek. Phenomenal. Well, Josh, tell me, where can we learn more about you? Where can we get your book? I know it's on Amazon. How can we connect with you on social channels? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's really a pleasure to be with you today. Um, I, I would really recommend people check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. Um, 
you can get the book there if you want, but even if you don't want to buy it, it's free. And there's a whole bunch of resources there. There's a toolkit, uh, where, which we actually made a special thing. If you want, you can get free access, just type in the word dub as your secret magic code and you'll, you'll, you'll get access, but there's, there's an assessment tool. There's downloadable worksheets. Just again, it's a whole support mechanism to bring your, your creativity to the surface. And if you want to connect with me personally, all my social handles are just my name, Josh Linkner, J O S H L I N K. N-E-R. And of course, I have a website, as you might imagine, joshlinkner.com. Very cool. And then on that website, you can just go to the toolkit link on the top navigation. And then in this, there is a form for the secret code where you can enter D-U-B-B. So we will be putting that in the show notes. And Josh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you. Hey, one last quick thing. One of the hallmarks of creativity and innovation is not just take, you know, and coming an idea, betting it and putting your whole life on it. It's the idea of experimentation, always trying new stuff. And I'm always trying to do new stuff. And so literally just before we were, we were so impressed with Dub, uh, we're like, oh my God, we're going to try that. We got to give it an experiment. So we're, we're excited to dive in and experiment with, with your amazing company and technology. And of course, I'll let you know how it goes, but I'm, I'm eagerly optimistic that it's going to be a, a raging success. Well, thank you so much for saying that. You know, so much of the, process of building dub was was about the things that we conversed about in this conversation which is listening which is you know iterating which is being creative trying to solve problems um, being empathetic you know connecting to people so thank you so much for saying that and i'm available for support anytime you need it <laughs> awesome thanks again thanks <laughs>